Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, one, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And altogether, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Chris. And you may be seated. I'm going to ask for J.P. Watson to come up on stage, and I'm just going to give a bit of introduction for, um, for him. Thanks for being here this morning. And, um, and one of the things that you need to know about J.P. is he is the current church planting resident at Deer Creek, one of our fellow PCA churches. They're down in Littleton, but that's not where J.P. is going to end up. He's actually looking to plant a new PCA church that we can be partnered with for years to come uh, just south of the uh, University of Denver area of town, if you know where that is. Um, it's where the first Chipotle is. That's actually where he's planning to have public services. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> and, uh, but seriously, JP is a great guy. Ronnie and I have had the pleasure of getting to know him um, over the past months. He is eager to serve in the Denver area. He's eager to see the good news of Jesus proclaimed not only in this place, but in a way that connects deeply with this city with its sensibilities and the people of it. And we are delighted to have you laboring alongside us. I'm going to go grab your podium real quick. <laughs> and with that, um, if you can indulge me just one more moment, I'd like to pray for you yeah. before we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for JP, for his presence here, for his family's presence here in our midst. Lord, may we be a blessing to him as he is a blessing to us. We pray, Lord, that the words of his mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight this morning, in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. Well, it is good to be with you all this morning. Jason, I'm short, but I'm not that short. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Maybe this is the one. Let's do it. Wow. Well, this is awkward. Oh, there we go. That's the one. 
That's, that does the trick. Well, it, it is good to be uh, with you uh, this morning. Uh, my wife, Carrie, and our children, Lucy, Judah, Luke, and Jane, uh, are with us this morning. And we are pretty fresh to Denver, um, just as much as the Garcia family is. Uh, Ronnie and I are coming into the presbytery uh, at the same time. But we are uh, glad to be with you this morning. I'm excited to take a look at Acts chapter 2 uh, with you all this morning uh, to Get us sort of situated into the book of Acts. I'm going to give us a little bit of an overview of what has led up to uh, what we just had in our New Testament reading. So the book of Acts is written by a guy named Luke. And uh, Luke also wrote one of the Gospels. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as, as, as an account of Jesus' life and his ministry here on earth. And then he wrote the book of Acts as an account of what it looked like for the church of Jesus uh, to grow and to go into uh, the different areas and parts of the known world uh, at the time. So you can kind of think of it like this. Luke is sort of like volume one and Acts is volume two. It's sort of a a two-volume work. Now, what's happened up to this point as we come to Acts chapter two in, uh, in recent events is that Jesus... Uh, has actually been arrested. Uh, he has, uh, he's been a- a- accused uh, of crimes that he did not commit. He has been sent to a Roman cross, and he's been crucified, uh, and, and he's died, and he's been buried. But then he's actually risen from the dead. He's come back to life, and he begins meeting with his followers uh, after that. And after uh, some time, of meeting with them, Jesus actually ascends uh, into the heavens to the right hand of God the Father, and he tells his followers, his disciples, that they are going to be his witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all of the earth. And then what Jesus does, he tells his disciples, he says, wait, just wait, pray, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will actually send you out. So we come to Acts chapter 2, and that's actually what's happening, is that Jesus' disciples, his followers, they've gone back to Jerusalem, and they're waiting, and they're praying, and they're waiting to receive this Holy Spirit that Jesus uh, has promised them. And so that's where we actually lead in to what we read in Acts chapter 2. But before we dig into that story, I want to kind of connect some sort of big picture pieces uh, in our lives and in the world uh, around us. So this is sort of a 30,000-foot thing. Um, Humanity in general, us included here, we have this sort of hard wiring in us that we want to make sense of the world and our place in it. Like, we want to make sense of reality. This is something that's absolutely innate. You see You see it in infants. When they come into the world, part of what they're doing is trying to make sense of their reality uh, around them. That's why they recognize and they know who mom and dad is, and they recognize and know that you're not mom and dad, and so you're not safe. And so I don't want to be around you, and I don't want to be with you. It's something that we are sort of hardwired with. And then we do this. We try to make sense of our world and sense of reality at a real basic level. You know, when you're driving or when you're going to the grocery store and you're trying to figure out what is on what aisle. But naturally what happens is we begin to lead from that basic level into some bigger questions about the world 
and about our place in it. And so I want to read to you a few quotes from some modern-day people who are just really drawing on humanity throughout all history of ways that, that people are trying to make sense of the world that we live in. This one might strike a chord with you. Uh, this is something that we have a tendency generally to say, you ever heard this, everything happens for a reason? Anybody ever heard that before? Um, here is one way that the uh, entertainer, uh, Justin Bieber, is trying to make sense of the world. He says, the success I've received comes from God. You see, he's trying to make sense of why he's so successful, why he's such a successful person. Um, another entertainer, Kanye West, says, we came into a broken world, and we're the cleanup crew. We dig a little bit deeper. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, who's a guy who's a sort of popular writer, uh, well-known uh, atheist, someone who claimed that he didn't, didn't believe in God at all, he had this to say about being a dad. To be the father of growing daughters is nothing can make one so happily exhilarated or so frightened. It's a solid lesson in the limitations of self to realize that your heart is running around inside someone else's body. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, An individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. And then American writer David Foster Wallace, who not too long ago, or some years ago, took his own life, he said this, we're all lonely for something we don't know we're lonely for. How else to explain the curious feeling that goes around feeling like missing somebody we've never even met? You see, we're all trying to make sense of the world that we live in. And what is actually underneath all of that that you hear in every single one of these things is there's something in our gut that tells us that there's something more. There's something more. There's something bigger than just self. There's something bigger than just the individual. There's something that's actually transcendent, something that is outside of everything that brings meaning and makes sense to our world. And what Acts chapter 2 is doing for us is giving us the answer to that more that we feel deep down. And what Acts 2 tells us is that God is doing more. He is actually doing something supernatural. That God is doing something supernatural that makes sense of our world and our place in it. And what this does is it leads to a natural, ordinary kind of life. So if you're a note taker... This is sort of going to be our two points this morning. We're going to look at the supernatural. We're going to look at how that leads to making sense of life. And then we're going to look at a natural, ordinary life. So let's dig in with the supernatural. This is seen sort of in the first 41 verses of this chapter. What we see, as we've already said, these followers of Jesus, they've gone back to Jerusalem. They are sitting inside of this house. They're waiting to receive this Holy Spirit that Jesus has told them would come. And then there's this mighty rushing wind that is super, super loud, apparently. And then in verse 3, what we see is there are these images of like tongues of fire that are on the people that are in this room. And verse 4 tells us that they actually get filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is they start speaking in tongues. They start speaking in languages that are not like their native languages. 
And then in verses 5 and 6, apparently this whole thing is causing such commotion and it's so loud that people outside of the room where the followers of Jesus are in, they can actually hear what's going on in there and they start gathering around. And then what happens is this conversation that seems to be happening, it spills over into the streets. It's kind of like this, when you were a kid and you were in school and somebody yelled, fight, you know? You, had, you, you were going to turn, and you were going to see where that was going to be happening, right? It's kind of like that. There's something that's so big that's going on that it's attracting this multitude of people. And then in verse 6, we find that they are bewildered. They're confused. They're hearing things in their own language, but they know that these people don't speak their language. And so they marvel at it. And they become really, really confused. And so what do you start doing when you get confused about something? You start trying to make sense of what is happening and what is actually uh, going on. So the way that this multitude of people start to make sense of what they're experiencing is they're like, these people are drunk. Like this is, is early in the morning. They started drinking early. They're drunk. And that's what's going on. You ever been confused before? Have you ever been in a situation where something's been happening and you're trying to make sense of everything that's going on and happening around you, but you find yourself just really confused, like, what is going on? What is happening? About 18 years ago, uh, I was uh, in college, and I spent uh, a summer in, uh, in Delhi, India. Uh, and uh, naturally, from the U.S., you have to fly to get there. Um, so, uh, at the beginning of the summer, I started out in Charlotte, North Carolina, flew from Charlotte to Chicago, and had to catch a flight from Chicago to London, and then my flight from London was supposed to go to Delhi. But we ran into a problem. Our, our flight in Chicago got super delayed, so we missed our connection to Delhi. And so we ended up getting rerouted to Mumbai, which is in southern India, um, and we landed in Mumbai at about 3 a.m. in the morning. And uh, it was myself and a group of other uh, Americans. And so we find ourselves in the airport in the most populated city on the planet, and we have no idea what we're doing. And thankfully, at the airport, they actually had people there who would, uh, would come around and, and find people who clearly had no idea what they were doing or where they were at, and they would help them help them. And so we had this guy who came up and he started uh, helping us, which was a huge, huge godsend. But here's the confusing piece. Uh, he took us outside of the airport and we were at street level. And then we walked a little bit. We went back in the airport. We went up three flights of stairs. Then we went back outside and we were at street level again. And to this day, like 18 years later, I have no idea. I have no idea how that happened. I have, I, have a, I have a suspicion that has a little bit to do with sleep deprivation, maybe, and maybe I'm just not remembering it correctly. But 18 years later, I'm still confused by that event. We all know what it's like to be confused and to try to make sense of the world that we're living in. We're really no different than these people here in the first century as they are trying to make sense of what is actually happening and then these masses, they gather together. And then this guy named Peter, he steps in. He steps up and he says, let me make sense of what's happening here for you. Verses 14 and 15. 
Peter says, standing with the 11 that are there with him, he lifts up his voice and he addresses the people that are there. Men of Judea and all, Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Peter says, look, they're not drunk. They haven't been drinking. It's too early in the day. And then what Peter does is he goes on to make real sense of what's happening and what's really going on. And what he does is he goes on to connect the events that are happening there with these ancient texts. Uh, these ancient texts uh, that, that we would sort of commonly know as the Old Testament. And Peter draws from this guy named Joel, who was a prophet some hundreds of years before this event. And Peter draws from Joel chapter 2 and says, Joel was actually predicting this event that's happening. The Holy Spirit coming and filling and everything. And Peter goes on to connect what's happening with Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, which will ultimately connect with the person and work of Jesus. You see, what Peter does is he steps in and, and he enlightens them to a bigger picture. What Peter does is he clarifies what was foretold in these ancient texts. You see, what Peter does is he actually brings crystal clear focus to what is going on. Uh, if you grew up in the age when I did in elementary school, we had things called an overhead. Anybody remember an overhead? Yeah? You know how you used to have to turn that dial to focus it? Uh, today, um, it would be likened to your portrait mode on your phone. You know, when you put it in front of somebody and it eventually focuses in on it. And we'll see, that's what Peter's doing here. He's bringing crystal clear focus to what is actually happening and going on. And we see this in verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter says, everything that's happening here, everything that you are seeing, everything that you are experiencing is to bring a clear focus to Jesus and to his life and what he has done. You see, the point of this unbelievable experience that these people are having is not that they're having an ecstatic experience. That's not the point of it. The point of it is a historical reality of what has actually, truly happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A historical reality that we do live in a broken world. A historical reality that we actually contribute to that brokenness, that we are sinful and the historical reality that Jesus actually comes and has done something about it. In his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Because Peter says death could not hold him down. You see this sense of more that, that we all have sort of like deep down in our guts. It's found right here in Acts 2. It's found in Jesus. 
Jesus is the more. Jesus' supernatural work of going to the cross and bearing the weight of our sin and purchasing forgiveness for you and me and being raised from the dead. Peter's saying Jesus is the more our hearts deep down feel exist. Jesus is transcendent. He is God and man. He has come into and invaded our reality, and he makes sense of our reality. And he is transcendent because he is the only one who has died and actually come back from the dead. Death could not hold him. Jesus has actually turned death and brokenness and sin into resurrection and life. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we'll see that we actually receive this truth, this historical reality of what Jesus has done by grace. That it's actually a gift that God gives us. That God actually gives us himself in what he has done for us. You see, death is real for every single one of us. There's not a single person in this room that will escape it. And some people say, and maybe you might even say, that, well, you know, we just live and then we die and, like, that's the end of it. But if that's true, like, why is it so painful? Why does it hurt so bad? Why do we fight so hard to stave it off? Why do we have industries that make billions and billions of dollars to push back Death. Why do we wish that it was different? What's well, because we were made for life. We were made for flourishing. We were made to live in the world that God created. And throughout the centuries, all manner of sciences have tried to answer this question of what is humanity for? What is our purpose? And every single one of them, it doesn't matter. Whether they're whether Christian or not, or, or, or some other religion, every single one of them agrees that humanity was made for life. That's why death is so painful. That's why we push it back. That's why we fight for something better. That's why we inherently want to fix that which is broken. That's why we want to make that which is wrong right. You see, Kanye West is actually onto something. The world that we're in is broken, and we feel like the weight of the cleanup crew is on us. But there's a problem with that paradigm. The problem is, is it doesn't actually account for the biggest part of the problem, us. You see, we try to fix humanity by making humanity better. We try to fix the problem with the problem itself, and we've never actually attained it. We've never actually gotten there because you can't ultimately fix a problem with a problem. You can't fix the ultimate problem of sin and death with humanity. We actually need something outside of ourselves to invade. We need something bigger than self. We need something supernatural. And I would say that Christianity actually offers the best resources out there for our brokenness. 
Christianity offers the best resources for human frailty, for sin, and for death because Christianity offers us a Savior. Christianity offers us Jesus, the one who has undone sin and death through his life, his death on the cross and his resurrection. That the God-man, the one who's come in and entered in, the one that death cannot hold down, the one who is truly righteous, the one who is supernatural, actually invades our world, invades our hearts, reverses sin and death and gives life. Jesus is the more that our hearts are looking for, and it's rooted in a historical reality of the person and work of Jesus, the one who's undone sin and death. And here's the thing, that actually alleviates this pressure that we feel to be transcendent. It actually alleviates the pressure that we feel to fix everything that we see that is broken around us because we're not actually made for that. Jesus is. Jesus is the only answer to all of the brokenness that we see and experience. And Jesus is the only one who's actually made for it. That's how the supernatural makes sense of the world that we live in. And what that does is it leads a ordinary life, a natural ordinary life. In verse 46, I think it really, Luke really sort of encapsulates what this ordinary life looks like. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The ordinary life looks like people with glad and generous hearts alleviated the pressure to try to be the transcendent, and he invites us into an ordinary life of flourishing in him, a life that shapes and builds glad and generous hearts. But how's that happen? Like, what's that actually look like? We see that in verse 42. You see these people who come to believe in the historical reality of what Jesus has done. What they do is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayers. So the life of a people with glad and generous hearts looks like giving ourselves to these things. So let's kind of hover over each one of these. To the apostles' teaching. Giving ourselves over to Jesus and what he has done. The ordinary response to that supernatural reality is that the truth would shape us that we would be shaped by what Jesus has done in every conceivable way. In every conceivable way. Like the things that you care about, Jesus cares about those things more than you do. Like Jesus cares more about everything than any of us cares about anything. Shaped by that reality. And what that means is that Jesus is actually our ultimate authority which means that Jesus has the authority to define what our lives are supposed to look like, to define how our lives are supposed to be shaped. Jesus has the authority to define what flourishing is. Jesus has the authority to define what destruction is, what right is, what wrong is. Jesus has the authority to speak into our vocational lives, into our work. Jesus has the authority to speak into our 
families, what our marriages look like, what parenting looks like. Jesus has authority to shape how we think about our money, to shape how we think about our resources, to shape how we think about our hobbies. Jesus has the authority to shape how we think about all of these bigger things that we are dealing with in our culture, like justice and sexuality. Jesus actually has the authority to speak into that and to guide us and show us and shape us by what is right. Jesus belongs everywhere. There is not one square inch of our lives that Jesus does not belong. And what this means for us is that we would be open-handed toward Jesus. That we would come to Jesus and expect Jesus to shape us and to grow us and to change us. That we would be open-handed and not be so committed to being right, being the ultimate thing for us. But rather, that we would see that Jesus actually has the authority to shape that in us. That we would be open to grow to want to grow, to to mature, to want to submit to Jesus and expect God to show us our selfishness and to show us our sin and to show us our brokenness in every single part of our lives and to break us down with grace, to break us down with grace to where we come to grips with the supernatural reality of Jesus' death and his resurrection again and again and again. And here's the thing, is that Jesus actually makes sense of all of those things that we care about. Jesus makes the most sense of marriage, of parenting, of all of those things that we, that we feel deep down that we want to see flourish and grow. So... This ordinary life looks like committing ourselves to the apostles' teaching. It also looks like committing ourselves to prayer. You see, prayer is the ordinary response to God pursuing us in his grace, to God speaking Jesus, undoing sin and death into our hearts. And here's the thing. Prayer is, just, is really simple, actually. Prayer is talking with God. It's really simple. It, it, it is offering up everything in our lives to God and talking with God. It's not that complicated, but it's also really risky. It's risky because prayer is actually admitting that we need someone outside of ourselves. Prayer is admitting that we actually have utter dependence. Prayer is admitting that we contribute to the problem that needs to be fixed. Prayer is admitting that we can't do life alone. Prayer's not escape. It's not on a wing in a prayer. It's not our thoughts and prayers are with you, though it is that. Silence. Prayer's a posture of life. Prayer is seeing the need for something to come from outside of us into us and to invade our hearts and to grow us and to change us and to make sense of life. Prayer is admitting that we need sin and death to be undone. So these people, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. They committed themselves to prayer. They also committed themselves to fellowship. You see, fellowship is the natural, ordinary response of God in his grace calling us out of sin, out of death, 
and into Jesus. Because then we are called, as Ronnie stated earlier, we're called into the church. Into a community of people that are being shaped by Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. That you don't get the option of just having Jesus without his church. People with glad and generous hearts commit themselves to the church, commit themselves to fellowship. Where we are being shaped by being known and loved in Jesus. And in verses 44 through 45, what this looks like is this community, this church is sacrificial. It's the kind of place that cares enough to see needs. It's the kind of place that cares enough to make needs known. And it's the kind of place that cares enough to provide for those needs. Recognizing that everything that we have comes from God and belongs to God. It is all gift. And then that we would share this desire to spread God's gracious provision to one another and even outside of the walls of our churches. This fellowship, it speaks truth, confesses sin, contemplates what we believe. It receives assurance of pardon. This fellowship shows grace to one another. It builds one another up in love. This fellowship is safe. It's real. It deals in the realities of life. It's present. This fellowship is giving ourselves to one another in the way that Jesus has given himself for us. This fellowship is a place where being broken and sinful is not shunned and cast out, but invited in, brought in. It's the place where we are known and we are loved and we are forgiven in Jesus. And we get welcomed into the gracious arms of Jesus' church. A people with glad and generous hearts are shaped by teaching, by prayer, by fellowship, by the breaking of bread. Breaking bread is just the ordinary response to actually what Jesus has done because Jesus himself said that he is actually the bread of life. Breaking bread with each other is recognizing the reality that everything that we do, we do to God's glory even literally nourishing our own bodies. Because what we're saying is that we want to be prepared for the life that God is giving us. We want to be prepared for the way that God is making sense of our world and our place in it. And it actually even leads to the meal that we take together. Jesus' table. A meal prepared by the supernatural one who's undone sin and death. And the effect of all of this, like the net effect of being a people committed to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, is that we would be a people with glad and generous hearts because Jesus has come and given himself for us. But if I'm honest with myself, like if we... If I just take a moment, like, brutal honesty. I mean, I think we should all uh, consider brutal honesty. I struggle to want a glad and generous heart. I, I really do. It is so much easier to be angry and frustrated. It's so much easier to be angry and frustrated. 
everything around us wants us to be angry and frustrated. Everything around us like wants to get us worked up and into a frenzy and unbalanced and polarized. Everything, everything around us wants us to do that. And it's so easy. It's so easy to be angry and frustrated. And I want to be angry and frustrated so bad. And then that ultimately even leads to apathy, where you're just like, I just don't even care anymore. If I'm honest, I really struggle with being committed to the apostles' teaching. Because I really struggle with submitting my life to Jesus. I really struggle with submitting to Jesus' authority in my life. I struggle with submitting to the reality that Jesus actually has the right to define how I think about my marriage, how I think about money, how I think about parenting, how I think about those bigger issues of justice and sexuality and all of those things. I don't want to do that. I don't want to submit. Prayer? The last thing that I want to do is admit utter dependence. is admit that I don't got this, that I actually need help, that I actually need something from outside of me to get into me to make sense of the world that I'm living in and how I'm supposed to live in it. Fellowship? Honestly, standing up here, I, I really struggle with, like, if you really knew me, I'm not sure that you would love me. I tell myself that, I tell myself that. Fellowship is so hard because it's the place that Jesus calls us uh, into community with one another to be vulnerable and to, to be open, to share our struggles, to admit our contributions to the brokenness in the world, and to, to really risk it in hopes that that person on the other side is going to speak the truth of the gospel and not judgment and condemnation. I struggle with that. Breaking bread most of the time, I think about meal is, a meal is checking it off the list. And I would much rather focus on myself. I would much rather focus on my production, on what I am doing. I have a tendency to want to isolate out of fear. I struggle to believe that grace is actually true and that Jesus is actually shaping me in the community that he's calling me into. That he's shaping me in the church. But here's what's true. We need community so badly. We, like, we can't live without it. We, we have to have it. And we are living in, in a world that is trying to exercise like unhinged freedom all over the place and is trying to find meaning in all kinds of different things. And we're doing that without being in community with one another to help us define what true freedom looks like and to help us define what meaning really and truly is. Like, we have to have this thing called community. But if I'm honest, I want to push it away. I want to push it away because I'm afraid that it might call me into changing something about myself that I don't want to change, that I'm not interested in changing. Maybe that's you too. You see, what Jesus is doing is he is actually undone sin and death. 
And Jesus is calling us to fix our eyes on him, to step into the reality that his supernatural work is what defines us and makes sense of our world and our place in it. You see, what Jesus is inviting us to do is he's inviting us into life and flourishing. And whether you're hearing that for the first time or the thousandth time, the invitation is still the same. The invitation is life and flourishing in Jesus. A number of years ago, there was a professor at Oxford uh, University, um, an English professor, and he wrote a series of children's novels. Uh, and uh, one of those novels is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The guy's name C.S. Lewis. You've maybe heard of him. Uh, this set of novels is actually still widely to this day some of the most sold books around the world. And in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis puts forth this character who's a lion, and his name is Aslan. And Aslan represents all that is life and flourishing and good. And then there's this other character. It's a white witch, and she represents destruction and evil and brokenness. And towards the end of the book, we find the character Aslan, who is going to this meeting with the white witch and her minions. He's going to this stone table. And he's followed by two children, two little girls named Lucy and Susan. And they see Aslan heading towards this stone table and they start following him where it is that he's going. And Aslan knows and he recognizes that they're following him. And so he acknowledges that and he turns to them and they walk with him for a bit. We don't know exactly what goes on between them in that conversation and everything. And then Aslan gets to a point where he looks at Lucy and Susan, Lucy and Susan, and he says, okay, I have to go alone from here. And so Aslan continues on. Lucy and Susan, they sit back. Aslan goes up to the stone table. He meets with the white witch and her minions, and they capture him, and they tie him down on this stone table. They rip out his mane and his hair, and Lucy and Susan are seeing all of this happening and everything, and then ultimately the white witch and her minions kill Aslan. As you can imagine, Lucy and Susan are distraught. And in the wake of the next morning, they run up to the stone tablet to see if they can find Aslan's body, and they realize that he's not there. And so they frantically begin looking around for him, and they can't find him, and then Lucy turns and in the light of day, backing Aslan, she sees Aslan shaking his mane. And she looks at him and she says, I thought you were dead. And Aslan says, not now. And then she says, are you a ghost? He says, do, do I look it? And then he bends down and he licks her on her forehead. And Susan says, you're really alive. And they shower him with hugs and kisses. And then what happens is that they follow Aslan. Death could not hold Aslan down. Friends, death could not hold Jesus down. He has supernaturally undone sin and death. And he invites you and me into life and flourishing, an ordinary life of following him as he shapes us in his community, through his truth, through prayer, through recognizing that everything that we have and everything that we do 
belongs to God and is to the glory of God. And what he does is he shapes us and he makes us a people with glad and generous hearts. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us Jesus. And Jesus, that you would actually come um, willingly. You would leave perfection and enter into the brokenness. You would live the life that we should have lived. And you would die the death that actually belongs to us that we should have died. And in our place, you would switch places with us. You would be our substitute. And through your death, you would purchase forgiveness for us. And through your life and your resurrection, we have the promise of resurrection. And Holy Spirit, you are the one who works in our hearts to grow us in grace. Holy Spirit, you shape us through the supernatural reality of what Jesus has done. And we pray that you would work that deeper and deeper into our hearts. That you would grow us in our sense of the depth of our sinfulness and the depth of our need for our Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.